Well, as you're looking um, to Matthew chapter 12, I just want to say that uh, I'm encouraged to be in this study that is answering accusations, because we live in a culture where the heat is no doubt going to be turning up in terms of what we are accused of as Christians, direct accusations and indirect accusations. And I'm not someone by temperament or tone or personality or Christian disposition to ever feel sorry for myself with that. Uh, I think that that is what we were promised. It's what we signed up for. We don't want to assume accusations by uh, anything but just living for Christ, though. We just want to live for Christ. We want to be faithful. You do that at work, and these things will come. There are eight accusations that the chapter before us open up. They're direct and indirect. We learned of one last week, which is Jesus is called a nonconformist or an insubordinate. It was an indirect accusation. It was against his disciples out in the grain fields, just out doing the work of the ministry, doing um, what they do in preaching and ministering, and they got hungry. And the Pharisees were there to swoop down on them and call foul play, saying, you are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath, and that was out there, and that was an accusation indirectly of Jesus, who was their supervisor. Jesus ultimately says in verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He just takes command of the moment, saying, listen, I am the Lord or the Master of the Sabbath. You're trying to use Sabbatarian law against me. I'm the the governor of the law, I'm the writer of the law, I'm the Lord over the law. He's the one who interprets and applies the law. Well, this is uh, a message that begins where we ended last week. And I have to make a confession that as we go into our next section of Scripture, really I'm finishing what I was unable to finish last week that I couldn't let go of and restart for this week. And so I need to unpack the significance of what it means that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord over the Sabbath. And and it leads into our next section, which is dealing with Sabbath law as well. I want to be upfront to say that I'm no Sabbatarian. I don't believe in keeping a day in particular as sacred one over another. And there are Sabbatarians. There are people who do that. I do believe that Sunday or the first day of the week is an appropriate time to exalt the Lord in the way that we do because it reflects that Jesus rose on the third day. And in that sense, that principle is sacred to me. But if I worshiped on a different day, I personally would not have a problem with it. Uh, Romans is clear to say in Romans chapter 14, I think it's verse 5, why do you pass judgment on your brother, or do you despise your brother? That's verse 10. That's the context of not despising someone for having a personal conviction. Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced of his own mind. That's my position. That was Paul's position. Some people practice a separation with a day, and some people do not. But it's when that is a principle that you impose on somebody else to bind them into legalism, to put them in shackles, to say you are either being spiritual or you are being unspiritual in terms of a person's personal conviction, that's going too far. 
That's what the Pharisees are trying to do. They're trying to bind Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus with extra biblical legalism and catch him up short. If you disqualify the messenger, then you disqualify the message and the Pharisees keep the power. That was the whole point of what they were doing. But what does it mean that Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath? You know, with our busy lives, I think it's important to just reflect for a moment on what the word Sabbath means. Let's all just take a collective. It's May. We've been at graduation. Some of you have to go to a party or an event and everything's closing out. We're exhausted, right? Let's take a collective breath together. (sighs) The Sabbath means rest. The Sabbath means rest. It does. And it's easy for us as busy people in a busy culture, as busy Christians, to begin to lose the idea that the Lord designed for us to rest. The Lord actually values our rest. The Lord blesses us by giving us rest. We're required to sleep. I actually slept this morning. I don't often do this on a Sunday morning. Typically, my body wakes me up at 5. I'm bing. It's time to study. It's time to get ready and get rolling. My alarm woke me up at 6. I had no idea where I was. I was like, what happened, you know? But rest is, uh, is a joy. And it's important to understand that God has called us as Christians to practice the principle of Sabbath in terms of saying, I need to stop, think about the Lord, meditate on him, value Jesus and pause to be still and know that he is God. You'll see in the Psalms with the writings of uh, their hymnody, what they would sing, there are these moments called Selah, kind of in the margin or in in the sections. Those are pauses by divine design to be singing and then to have an interlude where you think about what you're singing. You're not just mindlessly mouthing the words, but you're engaging your heart on how big and great God is or how grateful we are that we are saved and blood-bought Christians and forgiven. That's what we're doing as we stop, as we practice the principle of Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of our rest. Where does this originate from? Well, remember the creation account. Genesis 1:31 God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day I'm a six literal day creationist because it's evening and morning the sixth day but then you go right to Genesis 2:1 Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested On the seventh, from all the work he had done, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The rest of God was for no lack of his own physical strength. Jesus is inexhaustible in his resources. I, you know, the Father, the Son, and Spirit were present at creation. There was no required rest in terms of a lack of energy for what had been created. So, what's the point? of rest. The point of rest there is just as we pause in a song to think and meditate, God in his creation account is saying, let's take a pause and let's look at what I've created, ex nihilo, which is the Latin for something out of nothing. What only God could do, he did, and he did it perfectly. It is very good. It is very good. And that is a reflection of his glory as creation is mirroring back to him that he is creator and he is very good. To pause, to stop, 
to pay attention to, to look up into the heavens and say, God, you are good. That is pronouncing Jesus Lord of the Sabbath. For Jesus, by the way, to say he's Lord of the Sabbath is to say, I'm Lord of the law. I'm the creator of the law and I'm God. This is why the Pharisees hated him for saying that, wanted to kill him for saying that. He was pronouncing indirectly there that he's deity. God had finished this work and he is the self-sufficient creator of all things. Such an important thing to understand, even in the history of Israel uh, as a nation. Israel had been delivered um, from bondage and Pharaoh. Um, They had been developed and formed out of the progenitor of Abraham, who had fled the Ur of Chaldees and brought them to a land and a people, and they were put in bondage. And they, but before that, they were separated and, and, and set apart under the sign of circumcision. And so as the nation of Israel, they were ethnically clean. They were different than the pagans. Just like how we are circumcised in our hearts, we are different and clean from worldliness, from paganism. But these people, as they journeyed through the wilderness, they came under a second sign, one sign leading to the second, the Abrahamic sign of circumcision, also in addition, the Mosaic sign or the sign under the Mosaic law of Sabbath, the second sign. This was a command to be obeyed. Again, all these commands originate in the heart, and then it's obeyed practically from the heart by God's people setting apart a day to stop and pause. Yes, the priests were busy. There was a temple sacrifice. Numbers speaks of this where sacrifices were brought. They were brought through the week, but there was a particular sacrifice that was brought on the Sabbath day to set it apart. Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Don't do any work. Look at verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So what's going on there? Well, there's meditation to the Lord. And then there's also a practical witness. And I was speaking to some men who had done some research on this. And I gave it some thinking, you know, with... Pagan nations who would go on trade routes through the land of Canaan, they may see this natural legal siesta that's taking place where all the busyness that they're part of with commercial um, you know, transition and, and bringing things economically, you come into a town that's like a ghost town. It's just stopped. Everybody's paused and they're asking, why aren't you working? What's going on? What are you about? And they're saying, listen, Yahweh, God, is the creator. He's the one that redeemed us. He brought us here to this land. And we're here as a people that are set apart in our hearts, circumcised, set apart as worshipers of the living God. We stop and pause. I wonder if people know that you're at church today. I wonder if people know that you take time and set it apart as a worshiper of the Lord. It's a witness just to go to church, just to be part of a covenant community, just to be part of the body of Christ is a witness by what you do and where you are. It's practical, it's practical to do this in terms of giving worship to God. He's our Sabbath refuge. Let me ask you this question, just as a, an application of this thought on Sabbath. How was your sleep? Not just because I slept well last night. Not just, I, I'm not always a good sleeper, but anxiety, fear, worry, doubt. Watch this one. 
control, being a controller, that'll wreck your sleep. It will. I'm first to the altar on that stuff. I understand. But trust, casting your cares upon him, quiet meditation, thinking about the Lord, claiming promises from scripture, resting in the gospel. Faith is a synonym for rest, by the way. Resting in Christ. That'll give you physical rest. That's, that's the outflow of trusting the Lord, the Lord of the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy, right before the Israelites were going into the land of Canaan, um, Moses, Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, it is the reiteration of this promise from Exodus 20. Exodus 20 was the original writing of Moses. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He wrote those first five books of the Bible. And why do you have Deuteronomy if it's already written in Exodus? Well, Deuteronomy is the sermon or the exposition by divine design of Exodus. He, Moses is saying, listen, I want to reiterate or say a second time what I said to you before. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But this time, Moses puts it in the context of the fact that God is their savior. He's delivered them all the way from Egypt, all the way through the wilderness wanderings. The first generation was laid low in the wilderness for idolatry. The second generation had been born from them and they're ready to go in and retake the land and go across the Jordan into a pagan land and redeem it there as God's people. Joshua was going to take the charge and lead them. Deuteronomy 20, chapter 5, verse 12, observe the Sabbath to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Then verse 15, you remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and, in the, and the, the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. What do we remember? How do we take time and pause with the Lord? Let me give you two attributes to focus on this week when you take your personal time with the Lord. God, you are creator. You are God and I am the created. There is a distinction between you and me. You're always the creator. You are the sustainer. Remember Paul in the book of Acts chapter 17. In him we live and move and have our being. All things are held together by Christ. You are creator, I am not. I am your subordinate. You are Lord of my Sabbath. I will rest in you. Second, you are savior. You redeemed me out of slavery. You bought me with a price. You rescued me. I did not rescue me. You are creator. You are savior. These are the two themes of heaven. That'll be the, re- the redounding song sung by all the nations of all the believers for all the time, for all the years. Hebrews 4 picks up on this, saying the Christians are like marathoning runners, just like the wilderness children going to Canaan, going to that land of rest, going to that place. We are running, persevering all the way to heaven with the themes of creator and savior in our minds. I think of Jim Elliott. Remember him who he and Elizabeth and you know, those other college kids that went down, I think from Wheaton College, and they went as missionaries to the Aka Indians. They were called the Warani Indians, a tribe on the eastern side of Ecuador, January 1956. And they sang this song as they were going into a village that was going to martyr the men. It was uh, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Jim Elliott, Roger Yodarian, Peter Fleming, as they were shot dead by arrows and spears. And they sang, we rest in thee, our shield and our defender. We rest in thee. 
That's the point that is being driven by this Sabbath theme. Remember, Jesus said these words in Matthew 11, right at the end of this chapter, going into chapter 12. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me just tell you, I'm compelled to go to a savior that calls me to himself and says, I will give you rest. That's when I want to have a quiet time. That's the motivation of my heart. You want to take my burden and make me feel safe. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the trade of a works yoke for a grace yoke, trading the flesh yoke in for a rest yoke. That's where you're saying, Jesus, you aren't a burden to me. I'm putting myself under you so you can lift me up and carry me through my next week. This is the Christian experience. This is what cults try to pull you away from. You say, I'm not going to join a cult, but you might join a philosophy of legalism. I've seen people sucked out of our church who are pulled into things like hyper charismatic theology that say, if you don't preach that the sign gifts are for today and you have that power, then you're not preaching the whole Bible. There are people that add things to the gospel to try to subtract grace from someone's life. If you add anything to the gospel, you are subtracting grace from your life. Don't trade anything for grace. Don't be, don't be one into Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or even a Sabbatarianism that becomes legalism. Seventh-day Adventists can draw you into things like that. Roman Catholicism, any addition to grace subtracts grace altogether. Never forget that. You want your Sabbath rest. Jesus is your sufficiency. He is your rest. That leads us all into verse 9. This is our context for verse 9 and where we're going. And I want to say this. There are, again, eight accusations, direct ones and indirect. This is accusation number two. This context is where Jesus is coming out of the fields into the synagogue. He was accused of being a, a nonconformist, leading, leading his disciples into nonconformity of the law. And now he's being accused of being an outright public rebel. That's what's going on. Let me read to you our section, verses 9 to 14. He went... On from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Each accusation, this one calling Jesus a rebel, is building on the next. There's eight of them. They become more acute. They become more personal. Accusing disciples to indirectly get Jesus. Now it's Jesus. And they're going to continue to accuse him of things like being a pagan or being a Satanist or the list goes on. And all of these accusations are having one of two effects. It's in one sense affirming Jesus because each accusation is making him stand taller. In another sense, it's condemning the accuser, each accusation making him or her, in this case him, harder and weaker, stronger and weaker. 
Accusations make Christians stronger if you respond the right way, and they make the accuser weaker and harder. And ultimately, all of this is leading up to a natural pivot point in Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus will move from speaking directly and clearly to speaking in parables. Jesus at that point is saying, I'm not going to cast what's clear to believers as pearls to what is unclear to unbelievers as swine. I'm not going to cast my pearls to swine. I'm going to now speak in parables. The truth will be heard and understood by those whom have ears to hear and eyes to see who can understand it. And it will be blocked and guarded against and from those who are hardening up and accusing and walking away from the Lord. All of this, one accusation is driving the next, and we need to look at accusation now, number two. Jesus moves from the outside to the religious center, and he encounters, by divine design, a man with a withered hand. Now, do we know where this, withered, this man with withered hand came from? We don't. I don't think it directly says the Pharisees brought him there to trap Jesus, but they are utilizing this moment to try to trap Jesus. Very public moment, public event. Man with a withered hand, everybody sees that. Everybody knows that Jesus can heal this man. He's been healing. The disciples have been healing. There's supernatural events and powers that are irrefutable. That's what makes the Pharisees' hard-heartedness so obscene, so weird. So peculiar. Why wouldn't you believe on Jesus? Why wouldn't you bow and worship to the Lord? Well, they wanted their way. They wanted their law. They wanted their power. They weren't willing to submit as creatures to the creator, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Savior. They didn't want to see him for who he was. And so they wanted to trap him. They wanted to accuse him, even if he could heal this man. Jewish tradition said that you could only give someone medicine if you were saving that person's life. On the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, you weren't going to be taking somebody to the hospital for a broken arm. You had to kind of ride it out to the next day. You're not going to be, you're not going to get your hand mended. Now, this is not talking about a medical procedure, though. This is talking about the Lord who's there, who can heal this man. This is talking about a need that can be met in the moment. And the Pharisees are saying, we're going to call foul on what we think Jesus would want to do. Jesus, will you just defer your supernatural ability one day so you can stay in the law and stay in keeping with our control system? That's what the Pharisees are doing. Or will you not? What is their accusation? Look at the verse here where, again, he entered the synagogue. He's out of the fields into the church area. And it says, and a man was there with a withered hand and they accused him. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? It's so they might accuse him. They're, they're trying to question this moment. They knew Jesus could heal. The logic was Jesus would see the need and have the heart to love and do it. Before Jesus heals, though, He answers this accusation. There's an accusation, then there's an answer. What does Jesus say? Jesus goes right into, basically, a parable. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? In other words, are you saying that a sheep, where I know that if your sheep went into a pit or a ditch, you would lift it out. Are you saying that animal is of lesser value than a person? Jesus is going to work from the lesser to the greater in his argumentation. This is similar to what Nathan the prophet did when he accused David of committing adultery and saying someone stole the sheep. 
It, it's, I don't know that it's animal love. I mean, sheep were pretty common in this culture. They're livestock. They're, they're meant to be sheared. They're meant to be slaughtered. They're functional animals, but perhaps some people had some animal love and their animal goes into the ditch and they're going to pull it out. There was a Qumran um, Jewish sect. They were um, made up of those who, who um, you know, were around the Dead Sea Scrolls and that they made a community. They forbade rescuing animals on the Sabbath. But most Jews permitted this kind of behavior where you could just rescue the animals. So the Pharisees were kind of trapped and tripped up in this moment. Jesus is making it a matter of life and death in terms of reaching this man with his withered hand. He wasn't going to die from it, but there's a sense in which Doing good is loving and saving and doing evil and closing your heart is like you're, you're saying you're dead to me. Listen to what he says in Mark 3. Um, it, said, it said in verse 3, he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? In other words, if I don't do good, it's as if I'm doing harm. I'm closing myself off. He says, is it Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He quieted them down. He wants to see the compassion come to the forefront and their hardness to be exposed, their hard-heartedness. James says, um, what good is it if you say you have faith and you have no works? If someone passes you by and you say, hey, be warmed and be filled. You honk at the person that's in need. Hey, be warmed and be filled. You have nothing to do with me. What about First John where it says, how can the love of God abide in you if you close your heart to someone in need. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Levite and the priest walking on either side of the road of a man who'd been surrounded by thieves, bludgeoned, beaten, probably dying there on the side of the road. And it says, so likewise, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw me, passed on the other side, but a Samaritan, Luke 10, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, here it is, he had compassion on him. This is what Jesus is promoting. He went to him and bound up his wounds and pouring on oil and wine and then set him in his own, on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He's exposing the accusers. There's a lot of people who will say, uh, well, if obedience to the law is um, you know, legalism, then I want to be anti-obedient. That's a new trend in our culture. People will flip this thing on its head and they'll say, we're all about grace. There really is no law and no obedience that applies to us. Even in the gospel, the law of Christ, you, you can't make it into that because that's Phariseeism. That's the hard-heartedness of the Pharisee. There's even trends online these days I've heard about where if you're applying obedience in terms of biblical Christianity, that's toxic Christianity. That's toxic How could you do that? How dare you do that? And so there are these trends called hyper grace where they preach the indicative, the living of the Christian life, not the imperatives, which are the commands of Christ, even the applied commands of the Old Testament brought forward in the gospel. In Old Testament heresy, there was a man named Marcion who said, the Old Testament needs to be stripped out of our Bibles. That's not biblical at all. That doesn't apply at all. Even in principle, it doesn't apply. That's weird. That's off. 
All scripture is inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture that Paul was talking about, the all at that point that had been written down was mostly the Old Testament. All scripture is profitable in the New Testament church for Timothy to be equipped and adequately equipped for every good work in Christian service. So surely these things apply. Obedience matters. Hyper grace movements where they say, no, it's all grace. It's just grace. And it is all about grace. But grace in the context of a transformed heart where you are spiritually empowered to obey the law, the law of Christ. That's how it works. It's the seesaw of indicatives and imperatives. You have them both together in the harmony of the gospel. I know of a former ministry colleague, a guy I went to school with, trained in... um, seminary with who took a church in a well-known city in our country and had a very very nationally known public scandal who was having you know committing adultery with a counselee and her husband was a professional athlete so it you know it hit everywhere but the guy was a good man solid bible teacher solid leader and um, had a good-sized church and then fell prey to Adultery, And then he built a theology of hyper grace around that to escape the accountability for what he had done. Suddenly I watched him online. I didn't know what he was doing or what he had done, but he's online and he's sort of untucked and saying, hey, man, it's all about grace, you know, and this is my theology and it's not about commands. And he's against commands and against obedience. And what he was doing is he was cloaking himself in a shroud of sort of suspended animation as a Christian. He, he was just saying, um, you know, you can't hold me accountable. You can't touch me because this theology is gospel. Watch out for that. That's the reverse of what Jesus rebukes here, but it is a false teaching that will get you. There are people who, who interpret the Bible and use a hermeneutic of Jesus. You better mention Jesus at a level that I want to hear it or it's not biblical exposition. That's out there as well. So how do we understand the law? How do we apply the law? Well, the letter does kill. If you try to earn your way into heaven by perfect obedience, you'll always fall short. The, the law is to expose performance that, that is not of grace. But the law at the same time is precious. Remember the author of Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. Remember Joshua You know, go into the land, lead the children of Israel into Canaan, cross the Jordan. And this book of the law shall be your meditation day and night. It's the word of God that is the law of God that roots us into God himself. The law reveals who God is. You just can't try to keep it in your flesh to try to earn your way to heaven. Remember Deuteronomy 6, how the children of Israel were commanded in Deuteronomy 6 to hero Israel. The Lord your God is one. And you love the Lord your God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you hear and meditate on the law of God day and night. And parents were supposed to raise their kids in the word of God. That's point one of the law. Point two, the law is a moral standard. You know what the law is? The law is a practical mirror to show who we are and who we are not, where we fall short of God's holiness and where we have transgressed and gone beyond what God forbids. There's the sins of omission where we don't live up to the standard and there's the sins of commission where we transgress the law. Practically speaking, when the, word, when the sign says, don't go on the grass, what do you want to do? Our hearts are exposed. We really want to go on the grass. I want to take my shoes off and run in that right now. That's called transgressing. It's going too far. 
The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God is sin. The rich young ruler was called to love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. He was exposed. It's like, man, I've kept it all. What do I need to do? What is the best law? It's heart exposed where we are undone, where we say we can obey the Lord if we love him chiefly. That's what God is always looking for. Point three on the law. Christ fulfilled the law in that it all pointed to him and it pointed to the cross and we obey it in the new covenant as the law of Christ. How do you obey the law then? Well, you understand that we are saved by grace alone and we are transformed from the inside out. We're not trying to obey the law from the outside in. We're obeying the law from the inside out and we're not obeying it for to make us right with God. We're obeying it because our hearts are changed. Romans 13 calls the law, the law of love. And we wanna love the Lord with heart, mind, soul, and strength, love our neighbors ourselves and apply what Christ has fulfilled as New Testament Christians who are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey it. I know that was a lot packed in. That's like a six month sermon series on the law in five minutes, but I couldn't resist. I told you I had a lot to say. Back to verse 12, Jesus said, of how much more value, this is Matthew 12, 12, value is a man than a sheep. How much more? I mean, are you really going to miss it? We're supposed to love this man on the Sabbath, on a sacred day where we are giving glory to God as creator, giving glory to God as savior. And we're going to just ignore this man's need. No way. So it is, here's the affirmation. So it is lawful, he's using their own word, so it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That's what this is about. Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath is applying and defining the terms of the Sabbath and he's saying it's lawful to do a work like this. It's lawful. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and was restored, healthy like the other. The hands were the same, the same. I like what C.H. Spurgeon said about this. Commands to be saved like repent and believe are like this one. I mean, Jesus gave a command, stretch out your hand. He's commanding. Again, here's a command, stretch out your hand. Now, this man would have been incapacitated to be able to do what Jesus was asking him to do, but this man did this in faith. It's synonymous with Jesus saying, believe on me as Messiah, as Lord of the Sabbath, as Lord of this moment. Obey. This is what Spurgeon said. Commands um, to be saved, like repent and believe, or like this one. These commands are not addressed to sensible sinners, <laughs> but to insensible sinners, to stupid sinners, to sinners who cannot, so far as moral ability is concerned, obey the command at all. Left to ourselves, left in our sins, we never would have been saved. We're naturally minded. We would reject Jesus. We would be just like these Pharisees. We would accuse Jesus. We would ignore miracles. We would rationalize things away. We would justify our own sin. We would create theologies or follow theologies to get away with whatever we could, but by the grace of God. And when you believed, Jesus looked into your heart and said, stretch out your hand. And your heart went to him. Again, Spurgeon, he was saying that um, this is, it's as, so as far as moral ability is concerned to obey the command at all in and of itself, this man with the withered hand was quite incapable of doing it, stretching out his hand. He couldn't do it because if he could stretch out his hand, there was no miracle needed. The miracle of his hand being restored is a picture of a heart being restored. I just want you to see that. These things go, no pun intended, 
hand in hand. They do. I still remember uh, growing up, um, I grew up in Virginia, and um, in Virginia Beach, and um, I've got one older brother, and and uh, we play a lot of sports together, a lot of outdoor basketball, a lot of unorganized neighborhood sports, a lot. We were really good at unorganized neighborhood sports. He was very tall, and I was short, so I could throw it over people. I could throw the bomb to him, and we would win the game playing touch football. He was an all-star baseball player at age 12 and was tall and really, could really throw a good ball and um, was, was in the all-star season and at the same time, we were playing neighborhood football down the street at Jimmy Bagley's house in our little neighborhood. And the, it was a sloping front yard with leaves on it. It was probably the fall season. And he was receiving the uh, kickoff to run it back. And I remember seeing him across the yard. He's running back, but his feet went out from under him. He slid down the hill. And Jimmy Bagley, he was down already, came in and gave him the late hit, separating his elbow where the joints in the x-ray were on top of each other. Very grotesque. I remember looking, squinting at his arm for a second, getting on my bike and driving home as quickly as I could, riding home to get mom to help save us in this moment. Um, So his arm was reset, but there was neurological damage. And some of you have suffered something like this. Neurological damage was hard. He was, um, it was a, a rough situation. Um, fast forward 25 years later to, or years, years later, more than 25 years, it was my brother's 25th high school reunion. The first time he laid eyes on Jimmy Bagley again, a reunion moment. Jimmy Bagley was the first words out of his mouth. Sorry for the late hit. So it was a serious situation. Um, my brother, he went through physical therapy, went through the shock therapy. Was he going to be damaged for life? He was out of the baseball season. You know, that was hard for him. I'm watching this. He's using the rubber ball, the therapy ball. Um, My mom never gave up on it, even though the doctors begin to call him disabled or handicapped. And then one day, um, the Lord intervened and everything began to fire again. The nerves healed and it came back. And it was amazing. And I was eight or nine years old, you know. I don't know. He couldn't change. In ancient um, antediluvian period, um, before remote control, uh, he was unable to change the TV set. Suddenly, all that came back. So I'm at a youth retreat five years later, and I'm sitting there, and my brother at 16 became a Christian and began to give his testimony about how the Lord healed his arm. His arm had been separated. The nerves weren't there, and the healing of his withered, atrophying hand had come back. That healing was the seed that was sown in his heart for his conversion. Little did I know I'm sitting there as an unregenerate, blind, repugnant, rebelling um, 12, 13-year-old having seeds sown in my own heart by my brother's testimony for his withered hand being restored, his heart being healed, and my heart began to open up. And so five years after that, that's when I believed. So you want to put this encounter in context This encounter where Jesus healed the man with the withered hand brings and brought people to a crossroads. You are either going to soften your heart, bow at the feet of Jesus Christ, or you are going to harden up and hate the one who can save you. He's creator, he's savior, or he's a fake, a charlatan. He's robbing me of my own control. He's robbing me of my religion. He's robbing me of my position. And I don't want that. So I want to snuff out the message. Oh, I can't do that. So now we're going to kill the messenger. This is where they go. Look at this. They see the miracle. Verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They want to kill him. 
to deny Jesus as creator and savior ultimately means you want to murder Jesus. It means that you want to crucify Jesus to yourself and reject forgiveness, reject grace. Without a changed heart of love, you're a clanging symbol. You can do all that. You can have all the prophetic powers, understand all the mysteries and knowledge. First Corinthians 13 two. have all the faith. So as to remove mountains, but have, if you have not love, I am nothing. It says you're nothing without a heart transformed to love. No compassion for the withered hand, no compassion for Christ, no love for him. Hard heart. You become more hardened and you're blind to what is irrefutable. Jesus' interpretation of the law was true, was right. He is Messiah. That was irrefutable. His miracle happened. It was irrefutable. People who are observing that are either softening or hardening. You are hearing this message. You are seeing this in your mind's eye. You're either softening or you're hardening. The truth brings you to that dividing line where you need to choose to say, Jesus, you're Lord. It's irrefutable. You are creator and you are sustainer. You are Lord of the Sabbath and I will rest in you. That's the response that God wants you to have this morning.